I thought of this passage in Hebrews 2, first verse. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. And we may talk a little bit tonight about drifting, the human tendency to drift. And he says the answer to that is to give more earnest heed to the things that we have heard. Even if it's things we've heard before, if it's the word of God, let's give it the attention that it requires. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? He says here, how shall we escape if we neglect it? It feels good not to be neglecting it, doesn't it? To be paying attention to it, to be giving it heed, even if we've been challenged by some of the things that we've been hearing we're listening to it, we're paying attention to it, we're thinking about it, amen, and if we'll, if we'll do that, if we'll give it the attention it deserves, God is going to lead us into all of his truth and grace. This great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Now we're going to go there tonight. We're going to talk about the succession of the word of God, the authority of God, and the power of God through his people. So he says, this great salvation began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. So God is involved in the process but the process includes all those who have heard him, and now others can hear through them. So my title, as you saw, I think, was The Anointed Body, as the vessel of authority unto life. Okay, so we talked this morning about salvation, that it's not an abstraction, it's not a legal formula, it's not a get-out-of-jail-free card that Jesus offers us. It is a relationship with God. Walking in ongoing relationship with God is salvation itself. And we heard the scriptural basis for all this, so I'm not going to go through all that. I'm just, this is quick review, okay? Um, so the, the, it's the restoration of the relationship with God and the spirit of the day that was had in the garden, the merging and reconciliation of man to God, that we could be one with him again in reality, not in abstraction. So... Uh, we talked about the nature of that relationship being the covenant. We talked about the gospel being the good news that any of this is possible. That Jesus has done what he's done to give us the invitation to come be part of his bride and to receive in relationship with him. So can everybody agree that we are saved by faith in Christ? How does faith come to us? Okay, good. How can we hear that word according to that passage that you're quoting? They hear it lest someone preach it to them. Preach it lest they be sent. Amen. There is something that is required in order for us to hear. In order for us to have faith, we've got to hear. And it's got to be the word of God. Now, can we agree that the word of God is more than abstractions and principles and sayings about God? Okay, if that's all, it's more than quoting scripture. Because if it's not, then even Satan can speak the word of God. Right? Because Satan quoted scripture to Jesus. Was that the word of God to Jesus? No. 
It was out of context. It was being manipulated. There was truth in it in principle, but it was not what God was saying to him. Amen. So hearing the word of God, we, we live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and not just by an instruction manual. Receiving the word of God is about a direct encounter with the presence of God according to the will of God, an encounter with messengers that he sends to us. Now, Jesus was the first one sent in this way, wasn't he? The, the incarnation, the word made flesh that dwelt among us, John 1. Okay, he was the first one sent with this full message of salvation, but now he's ascended and he's given gifts unto men. He's committed to us, the church, the ministry of reconciliation. So we are now in Christ's stead pleading with others to be reconciled with God. So he's given this ministry to the church because the church actually is his body. According to Ephesians 1 and Colossians 1, the church is the body of Christ on the earth. It is the place where the spirit of Christ is incarnated in people on the earth. The head is, is Christ and he's in heaven and his body fills the earth. His feet are upon the earth. So the church is continuing his mission. This mission is not, I will just assert here, is not only to give the good news that you can begin a relationship with Christ. The gospel has effect only if we continue in it and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel that we've heard. Okay, so if there is a need for continuance, then there's a need to continue hearing the word of God. That's why we live by every word that proceeds from his mouth. Job said, I treasure the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Jesus said, we should pray, give us this day our daily bread. Okay, this is an ongoing need that we have to walk in the light of his word. Your word is a light unto my feet and a lamp unto my pathway, which presumes that we are going somewhere. <laughs> that this is a walk of salvation. Proverbs 4 says that the path of the righteous is as the first gleam of dawn shining ever brighter until the full light of day. Okay, so the word of God is the light. It's supposed to be shining ever brighter. The full light of day, I would contend, is when we see him face to face. When we meet him in glory and all that is hidden is revealed. Amen. That's the full light of day. So we've got to continue along this path and not be moved away. From the hope of the gospel. We've got to grow in grace as Peter tells us. And there's so many other scriptures. So my contention tonight is going to be. That we are saved. Not only by hearing an initial message. Not even only by. Experiencing the new birth. But by. Remaining and growing. In abiding relationship. With God. Through the spirit. And through his word. The written word. And through relationship with his body. Here on earth. So we're saved, I'm contending, by abiding in the vine. That the word continues to be made flesh and dwell among us through his people. So now this has implications that if we are not really planted into that body where that word can continue to wash us, you remember we read earlier today from Ephesians 5 about how Christ is washing the church with the water of the word to perfect her and present the bride unto himself. So this washing with the water of the word is taking place in the context of relationship where the blood is flowing through all the parts of the body. 
where Paul says in Ephesians 4, the body is built up by what, as each part does its share, causes growth for the body, as we speak the truth to one another in love. Okay, so this agent that is growing and building the body is the Word of God that continues to come to wash us, cleanse us, transform us, conform us to the image of His Son as we grow in grace. So, if we're not planted in that body that God has composed, we cut ourselves off from access to His ongoing Word, even the Word of discipleship, as He teaches us to obey all things that He's commanded. So, there's also implications for others in what I'm saying. And that is, if I don't participate in bringing that word, in being a living vessel of the Holy Spirit and the anointed word of God to my brothers and sisters, then I'm depriving others of their necessary food, of their life-sustaining word from God that he would call me to give to them as part of his living body. So we, we heard earlier today about understanding that I am the culprit. And this conniving, deceitful, carnal, lustful nature that is inside of me is my biggest problem. And the devil is going to leverage that nature inside of me. The environment of the world is going to leverage that nature inside of me. But this thing inside of me is the problem. And that's what Paul was addressing in Romans 7, like we talked about earlier. When he says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who is going to save me from me? A lot of people in our culture spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to save themselves or others from victimization by other people and you know, so on and so forth. But the central question seems, to, from the Bible's perspective, seems to be, who is going to save me from me? Because he says, Paul says, he's describing this condition of this unrepented, unconverted person. And he says, the good that I want to do, I I don't do it. And the evil that I don't want to do, I do it anyway. I'm paraphrasing, but you know what I'm talking about. You can read it there, Romans 7. And he says, so with my mind, I serve the law of God, but something else is at work in my members. So he's saying, even the intention to do right does not indicate the power to do so. It's not enough to save you. Changing your mind and deciding that you want to be a good person is not the fullness of salvation because we can't change ourselves. We can't save ourselves. We are in need of salvation outside of this rotten core that we have since the fall in the garden. Our need is to be saved from something that's inside of us and that we need every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So then the question becomes, How do I receive that word? Where do I find it? Do I just read my Bible every day and try to memorize it? How do I come in contact with the word that has power to overcome my own baser nature and deliver me from the snares of the enemy? So we're going to talk about authority. Now authority is almost a bad word in today's society. Okay, because it immediately pulls up connotations of somebody is going to tell me what to do. Now, maybe here in northern Idaho, no one battles with the spirit of independence. (laughs) 
But at least in Texas, there's an idea that it's a bad thing for other people to dictate things in your life. You're supposed to live a life of freedom, self-sufficiency, and liberty to do whatever seems best to you. Some people will throw in as long as you don't hurt other people. Okay? Now, I can agree with that completely. If we're talking about a certain type of authority that would compel me against my will to do the will of another. Okay, when we introduce the power that the state operates under, which is the power to compel people, ultimately by the threat of punishment, ultimately, if you resist long and hard enough, well, at least in Texas, you can get the death penalty. Okay, so the state is even defined by sociologists as the institution that has a legitimate monopoly on the use of violent force. So when we're talking about coercive authority, just the power to command and, and enforce someone to do something against their will, I couldn't agree more that it's appropriate that we have freedom to live according to our conscience, to live according to what we can freely choose is the right way. For us. But there is another type of authority. And we want to make this distinction really clear right here at the beginning. Was Jesus a man of authority? He was. Did he force anybody to do anything? Ever? In any form? No, never. But have you ever done a word search on authority in your New Testament? The word comes up a lot. And a lot of it is associated with Jesus himself. Okay, so let's look at a pivotal scripture that we've already talked about when we were uh, giving the definition of eternal life earlier from John 17 is Jesus' prayer. Jesus spoke these words and lifted up his eyes. I'm backing up to the first verse. Lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son also may glorify you. For you have given him authority over all flesh. To what purpose? You have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. This is an authority unto life. And then he defines eternal life. This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent Sent is an operative word here. Do you remember the passage from Romans 10? We're going to get back to it in a little bit. But do you remember the passage from Romans 10 where it said, How can they hear unless they preach? And how can they preach unless they are sent? Okay, so he's saying that salvation is relationship with the only true God who is spirit, Jesus said in John 4. God is a spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So... They're going to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, Yeshua, the anointed one, whom you have sent. So if he's drawing a distinction here, we know many other passages tell us that Jesus is God. That Jesus is the fullness of God, we're told in Colossians 2. So what distinction might he be making here? Well, we know that Jesus had a twofold nature, don't we? He was both fully God 
and fully man. In Him dwelt the Spirit of the Almighty God, the only true God, who is Spirit. And yet, this Spirit was dwelling in a human vessel that had been sent by God into the world to bridge the gap and make possible reconciliation between you and I and God. So he's saying relationship is with God. This is eternal life, relationship with Him and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. And he's connecting this to authority that gives this salvation. Okay, so what does this authority mean? Does it just mean, if we, if we view it through this abstract, legal, formulaic lens that we discussed earlier, then this authority to give life looks like, you know, somebody standing up in heaven at the judgment seat and saying, that one for heaven, that one not so much. Uh, that one, put that one in heaven. Okay, we'll declare him saved and we'll declare him not saved. I'm just, it's just this arbitrary decision that Jesus kind of gets to just make this decision. I don't buy that. I don't think that accords with Scripture. So what is this authority? Again, it's not coerced. He's not sending you or me to heaven. But He has the power to free us from the chains that bind us. These chains right inside of here. He has the power over those forces because He conquered them Himself. So this authority to grant eternal life is the authority to give an invitation. But it is an authority that can only have effect if we voluntarily choose to receive Him. It's a voluntary authority because it's the authority of love. And yet Jesus proved with His life, with His perfect obedience to the Spirit, He proved that love is stronger than death. That's why he has the power to free us, as we heard from Hebrews 2 earlier, free us from the fear of death, because he's already conquered it. Not through a greater sword, not through crucifying others, but by laying down his life for us and absorbing that just penalty that we should have received. Amen. So he has this power to give us an offer. He has the power to declare to us the gospel that a saving relationship with him is now possible. So this authority comes through the one that God sends. Now the word sent in the Greek, there's actually two words that are translated send or sent in the Greek. One is pempo and the other is apostello. You might recognize that second one. Now the word pempo is ascending like if you send a package in the mail. Once you've sent it, there's not really any relationship with it. You don't have any control over it. It's not your agent. It's just an object that you sent away. But the word apostello is, has the connotations of a transfer of authority. There is a merging of identity between the sender and the one sent. It's more like we would think of in, let's say, military terms where a commander sends his officer with an order for others and he says, you go and tell them we're doing this. And that guy goes under the authority of the one who sent him. He's a man under authority, as this Roman centurion would later talk about with Jesus. So this authority that Jesus carries is derivative. Jesus, in his flesh, told us over and over in several different passages that he could do nothing apart from the Father. The flesh... 
the authority of God as when it is expressed through human flesh, there can be nothing of that flesh involved. Otherwise, it's not truly God moving. In Matthew 23, Jesus is actually grieving as he faces the reality that his authority cannot be imposed on us. Even if it's for our good, we can refuse it. And he's talking about Jerusalem in verse 37. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. So even when the Lord himself is reaching for us, sending prophets, sending messengers, if we are not willing... We have pronounced judgment on ourselves simply by refusing the invitation. Simply by not receiving the one who was sent. That's how we forfeit salvation and come into judgment. There are some other passages that will make this clearer as we go. So authority and judgment is given to the Son, the one who was sent by God. John 5 and 24, Jesus speaking. Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word... And we're going to hear this theme over and over again, hearing the word. He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. We just defined everlasting life, salvation as a relationship with God. So he's now describing this relationship. What does it look like? It looks like someone who is walking in enough proximity to God with an open enough heart and mind that they hear him when he speaks through the one that God has sent. Is that a fair assessment of that scripture? He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Now, if you know your Bible, you just recognize that last phrase as appearing somewhere else. By the same author, actually. So John, this is John's gospel, and John is recording the words of Christ. John quotes those, that same last phrase, passed from death to life, in his epistle, in 1 John. Okay, but here it's not talking about Jesus. So right here he says, if we hear, Jesus tells us, if we hear him and believe the one who sent him, we have everlasting life and we've passed from death to life. Now in 1 John 3.14 he tells us, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love Jesus. Did I get it right? No. He says, we know we've passed from death to life because we love the brethren. And I challenge you to read 1 John as a whole and see if he does not repeat that basic message over and over and over. He's basically saying... You don't have a relationship with God if you don't have a relationship with your brother. We heard it quoted earlier today. If you say you love God and you don't love the brother that you can see, that's these people here. You're a liar. John's even more blunt than I am. And over and over through that epistle, that's the point he's making. There are some fascinating 
studies that have been shared with us over the years, and I won't be able to get into all of them tonight. But that's the point that he's making. He's saying your relationship with God is as real as your connection to your brothers. Does it seem as if he's assuming, to harmonize this with what Jesus said, that your brothers are now sent to you with the word? And when you hear the anointing and the word of God from your brothers and you believe the one who sent them to you, you are abiding in relationship with the only true God and the one that he sent. Because Jesus Christ is still coming. 2 John verse 7 actually says that the spirit of Antichrist is those who will not own that Jesus continues to come in human nature. One translation says, continues to come in our human nature. And you can try to slice that up six ways to Sunday to try to get it to say something else, but it means what it says. That if you cannot receive the fact that Jesus Christ continues to come and speak to us through the human flesh of his people, you are actually refusing the authority of Christ in your life, Antichrist. Strong words. Brother Rossi, go ahead. Okay, so just you quoted uh, John 3.14. Second, second John. Oh, yeah, sorry. First John 3.14. And I just looked over. You perhaps were going there already. But he says in verse 2, um, and he's already said, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. That's the operative phrase here, from God. And he says, because many false prophets have gone out into the world, but by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Then he goes on, he says, every spirit that does not confess uh, Jesus is, is not from God. Verse 4, you are from God. Speaking Little to the church. church. Yes. Yeah. Little children and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak as from the viewpoint of the world. And the world hears them. We are from God. Same thing he just said. We have to confess that Jesus is from God. Now he said you are from God. Now he's saying we are from God. He who knows God, there's the no word, the salvation through relationship. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error, which he's also defined as the spirit of Antichrist. Amen. If we get going on too much First John, I'm going to read the whole book. Seriously, that is the message that continually runs through that book is that hearing from your brothers is hearing from God, and you cannot say that you love God if you're not listening to them too. Okay, I'm just going to go quickly through some other passages that are going to reinforce what we've said. John 5, 26 and 27. This is a theme through the whole Gospel of John as well. Jesus again, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Now that's interesting in and of itself, because Jesus is spoken of in the, in the Gospels alternately as the Son of God and the Son of Man. 
And typically, when it speaks of the Son of Man, it's emphasizing His human nature. So it seems that He is saying He has given Him authority because He is the Son of Man. He's emphasizing His human nature. And He's saying, it's as if He's saying, this is going to be integral to bringing salvation to people. That this reconciliation... This movement of the Spirit of God inside the flesh of a man can be received by others. Now, Jesus never had any problem being received, did he? It was no problem because he was perfect. Everybody could tell that. And so everybody he met and he talked to, they're like, this is incredible. I'll do everything you say. Right? There was no, there was no issue. So if only we could be perfect, then everybody would listen to us too, just like they did Jesus. You... You're detecting my sarcasm. It didn't work. That should tell us something, though, doesn't it? About how difficult it is for our fallen carnal nature to receive God in the flesh. As long as he stays up there and we can kind of decide for ourselves in our heads what he's saying to me, I think the Lord is telling me this. That's one thing. But when he shows up, as he did on earth 2,000 years ago, and he begins to speak that perfect anointed word, Oh, they weren't so sure about that. We're going to get into that too. Jesus said in verse 30 of the same chapter, I'm still in John 5, I can of myself do nothing. Speaking of his human nature, in the flesh he can do nothing. As I hear, I judge. He's connected in relationship with the Father. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Verse 37, speaking to the Pharisees, you have never heard his voice. Okay, we, we talked about eternal life as being able to hear his voice. You've never heard his voice, nor have you seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, because you do not believe the one he sent. It's all hinging on hearing and believing the one that he sent. Next sentence. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. But you're not willing to come to me that you would have life. So we're still talking in salvation terms. Uh, salvation is going to be found in the scriptures. Let's look and let's find it. Amen. The principles are all there. The truth is all there. That's what I'm reading to you from. Amen. But he's addressing an attitude that says, I don't need a direct encounter with God's presence and anointing. I can figure it out myself. Just give me the manual. But that doesn't require any submission, does it? That doesn't require any humility. That's something we can stand over instead of truly understanding the Word of God. John 6, 29, Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. John 12, 44, Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world, that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my word and does not believe 
I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. He offers an invitation. He gives us opportunities. He sends prophets to Jerusalem and says, I would gather you in. And then we have a choice. And if we simply refuse, we have enacted our own judgment. Because the word judges us. Next sentence. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me the command and taught me what to say and how to say it. He's saying the only reason this is actually the word of God is because he is walking in relationship with God. And he is so tuned that he is, he is feeling and hearing in the Spirit and has become a vessel of the saving authority and power of God unto life for those who would hear him. Okay, I have a question in my notes that says, was Jesus the only one sent in this way? We've sort of already gone there. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Does that sound like a transference of the authority of the one sent? Okay, now we're going to see this is, this is a theme. Okay, let's listen to the next one, John 15 and 20. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Another translation I have here says, If they obey my teaching, they will obey yours also. John 17 and 18. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. This is the same prayer, John 17. He's praying to the Father. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Does this sound like the same sending? The same mission, the same word is being transferred to us. John 20 and 21. Jesus therefore said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. This is him speaking to his disciples. He who hears you, hears me. And he who rejects you, rejects me. He who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. There it is again. Some versions say, He who listens to you, listens to me. He who rejects you, rejects me. And if we reject Jesus, we're rejecting the one who sent him. You see the transference here. Whoever receives you, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. Is this a repeated theme in the gospel? I mean, how many times does he have to say it before we can agree that he's sending us just as he himself was sent? Okay. Now, you know this one. Matthew 28. Jesus came to them and said, All authority... In heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. He's, this is the great commission. He's commissioning us with his mission and his message. Therefore, you go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded to you. 
Okay, there's many more that we could go through. But do you see this transference of authority from not only just the Father in the Spirit to Christ in the flesh, but that Christ was the firstborn of many brothers who were going to continue this stream of anointed word that would save people. There are many passages that tell us, and I'm not going to read them right now, but I'm just going to say there's many passages that tell us that the church is the form that, is, that God has given to contain his spirit on the earth. Right? Christ was the vessel. Christ was the temple. We talked about these metaphors. Christ was the temple in his individual body. He was speaking to them of this body, it says in John, when he was talking about raising the temple up and tearing it down and raising it back up. He was speaking about his body. And yet there are many passages that now tell us that we are his body. Ephesians 2 tells us that we are being built together as a dwelling place for God in the Spirit. Okay, so this composed corporate body is now the locus of God's presence on the earth. Now, to to just briefly talk about what that means, we have to understand what a temple or a body is. It is an entity with many parts that have been orchestrated or composed or fitly framed according to a design. Now, anytime you have design, you're talking about authority. Anytime you have an author, we're talking about authority. An author has authority over that which he writes. Okay? A creator has authority over that which he creates. And so if there is a design, it implies that somebody had something in mind, and we must submit to that design if we are going to end up with the product that he had in his mind. So God has created this form, the form of the temple. A body is the same way. Can you put together a body any way you want? Just mix up the components, stick them together, and call it life. I mean, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. It's incredible how fragile we are, isn't it? I mean, how many systems are there in the body that if they go wrong, life is not sustainable? There's a bunch of them. There's maybe some that we could say, well, we could limp along without that one. But it is intricately designed in such a way that unless it's put together in the right way, you will not have life. You may have a dead form. It may sort of look like a body. But if the liver's not working, you will not have a live person. You'll have a body without the spirit, which is dead. Okay? So this is intrinsic to the idea of form. And this is true of of the temple as well. You remember when this happened with the tabernacle and with the temple, that it said that God gave specific patterns. I mean, the Old Testament goes on chapter after chapter in detail of how to build these things. And it says that in both cases, the tabernacle and Solomon's temple, that when they were built exactly according to pattern, what happened? The glory of God filled the tabernacle. The presence of God filled the temple. It was so powerful that the priest couldn't even minister. But it didn't happen until it was composed and constructed according to his design. Exactly according to the pattern given to Moses on the mountain. Or given to David that he handed down to Solomon. Amen? Does this have implications for what it means to be composed into the body of Christ? 
of how Christ would put together his body. Yes, it does, because if, it's, if we're lacking the spirit, if we're lacking power, if we're lacking direct presence of God in the church, we should look to the design and ask the question, has this been composed by God? Am I connected Is this body of people even arranged? I mean, is the church just a bunch of people who come into the same room together on a day or two a week? It's not. It's not just pieces stacked up any more than we can chop up a tree and stack it up and say, there's a tree, you can burn it in the stove, but it isn't going to make fruit for you unless all the parts are living in that design where the sap can run. And the body's the same way. Unless, unless the members are submitted to the design, you're going to be out of the blood flow. The thing isn't, there's going to be no breath, no life, no blood, no motion. Sometimes no emotion. Because <laughs> God's not there. He's not moving on anybody. But when people determine to submit themselves to His design, the possibility occurs for God's presence to be with us. This was the purpose for the temple in the Old Testament in the first place. It wasn't because God needed a fancy house. In fact, he says multiple times in the scriptures, you know, (laughs) the highest heavens cannot contain him. Solomon said, how much less this house that I have built for you. The Almighty God does not dwell in temples made with hands. Isaiah says it. Paul quotes it in Acts 17. Okay, so it's not that God needs the temple. The whole form of the temple in the Old Testament was to teach people that if they were to come into the direct presence of God, they had to do it God's way. They had to submit to His authority, to His Word, to His way of doing things in total. So, I mean, He, he spells it out for them how they're going to dress, what kind of sacrifices they're going to bring, what time of the day or what time of the year they're going to do it. He goes into great detail about all these things. Is it because God is just a picky fanatic? I don't believe so. I believe it was for our sake that he's trying to cultivate a people with an awareness that if we would submit our lives in total to God, his anointing fire and his presence can be encountered. And in those days, it only happened in one place that was called by his name, which we heard earlier is invokes his authority, okay, and invokes his presence because it submits to his authority when we submit ourselves to his name. So this was the place where it was happening. Only now, it's no longer the Old Testament where there's only one little place where there's a connection between heaven and earth. Now the body, now the temple is the body of Christ. The good news is we don't have to go all the way to physical Jerusalem in order to find the presence of God. But the same principle still applies, that we have got to submit ourselves to his design if we expect to have the fullness of his presence encountered in our lives. Psalms 133, you know this one. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. That implies a design. It's like the precious oil upon the head. Oil is synonymous with anointing, isn't it, in the the Scriptures? Where brothers are are together in unity, the oil of anointing is there. Upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. This anointing covers the whole body. 
It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. We heard earlier that's the church. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, which is what? Life forevermore, eternal life, salvation. There's got to be a coming together of brothers in unity if we're going to have that anointed word and presence of God that ushers us into relationship with him, which is eternal life. Acts 2, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, what were they doing? They were together. They were in one accord. They were in one place. They were seeking together. There wasn't divisions going on. There was a one heart and a one mind. And when the people of God come together, power that may have never been there before can come. Amen. Amen. So why does it tell us that? I think he's telling us there is a position of heart that we can share together that invites the presence of God. When you have a group of people who are mutually submitted to do his will, when two or three are gathered together in my name, invokes authority, I'm with them. He's presentational. He is present. Not just the concept of God or the God idea. That's when the Holy Spirit fell. Can we agree together that the all-important ingredient for a living body is the Spirit? That the Spirit-anointed Word is the lifeblood of the body. That's what saves us initially as we enter the path, and that's what continues to cleanse us. 1 John 1 and 7, If we walk in the light, there's one of those ifs, If we walk in the light, His Word is the light, As he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The word is communion, koinonia in the Greek. It's a term of church connection, the body of believers. If we walk in the light of his word, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from every sin. It's an ongoing tense in the Greek there. So he seems to be connecting fellowship in the body with the light of God's word and that this results in the cleansing of the blood of Christ. Now we'd like to detach those things sometimes and just, well, Jesus died and he shed the blood and somehow abstractly that cleanses me because of what he did for me. And yet here John is telling us that we have a part to play in this. We are to be walking, it's if we walk in the light. That means you hear his word, you receive it, you obey it. You know the ancient Hebrews had no different concept between hearing and obeying. In Hebrew, if you didn't obey, it was presumed that you didn't hear. So real hearing meant that you obeyed it, that you did it. When God spoke to you, you did what he said, or it was otherwise considered that having ears to hear, you don't hear. Having eyes to see, you don't see anything. So if we will walk in this light, then we have fellowship We receive his word, we walk in it, we have fellowship, we're connected. And the blood is flowing through the body. The blood is not a stationary, static element of the body, is it? My wife was pointing out to us the other day, I don't remember why we were talking about this. And she was saying, you know, the blood, if it ever becomes stationary, it's not only useless to perform its function, which is to feed and cleanse the body, It's actually lethal if it stops flowing. It becomes static and stationary. So this is the lifeblood 
of the body that is cleansing us, the washing of the water with the word. All these scriptural metaphors for the, for the word and for the spirit are fluid. Blood, water, fire, wind, oil. It's all the, these are the, the agents of motion, of action, amen, of experience. They're not dead and static. Now, these things take place within a form. If you lose the form, you will lose that blood. <laughs> you go cutting the form open and, and destroying it, you will lose the lifeblood. But if you don't have lifeblood, the form is dead. Okay, so G- when Jesus tells us in John 4 that those who worship must worship in spirit and in truth, we could say that he's talking about the form and the content. And that they've both got to be present if we're going to have living, sustained power. You with me? So I think we can infer from that that there are, and from our experience as well, that there are two ditches that we easily fall into in our personal lives and even as believers in in church congregations. One is spirit without truth, or at least without continuing in the truth, or which we might say is the, the content, but no form to perpetuate that content. And then the other ditch would be the truth of right form and right principle but it's dead because there's no spirit. There's no content rolling through it. So the spirit without the truth maybe looks like charismatic giftings and powerful maybe healing ministry or whatever. We, we've heard of these things that maybe even experienced some of them where there will be some outpouring of God. It's really a move of God. And yet it fizzles out. It doesn't sustain. Somebody quoted earlier... John 15, where Jesus says that he's appointed us to bear fruit and that our fruit would remain. This is something that's supposed to continue and actually grow in power. If it's God moving in us, it should be getting more powerful, not less. And yet the tendency of our weakness of the flesh is that we, we, may, we start out strong, you know, and then we wonder, what happened? Reading a book to my kids recently about a missionary. Incredible stories. What happened to him? Well, later in life he fell away from the Lord and the whole thing collapsed. Have you ever heard a story like that? We've all heard those stories. In fact, it's, it's the preponderance of what happens. Unfortunately. Is that something may begin in the spirit. But there's no, there's no perpetuating form of truth that is put together piece by piece and a frame and a content to hold that form. The other ditch takes the form of dead principles, a form of godliness that denies the power thereof, Paul would call it. Now, it seems to me that the first ditch, the spirit without the frame, without the body, you know, the spirit without the the form is going to be most common in a a brand new in the initial stages right of a move of god in fact if there is no spirit there usually isn't a move of god or maybe we could say always okay so no one says did you hear they started a new dead church in town and everybody's going to it i mean that doesn't happen okay so things begin because god is moving 
And they, they tend to fall apart because there's not the wisdom, there's not the understanding, maybe there's not the obedience to continue walking in the truth that would sustain that power and grow it. So that, that tends to happen. Things spring up and wither away. The other one is the one I want to focus on. And that usually happens a little later. And that is something begins in the spirit, but we're inclined to finish in the flesh. We're inclined to lose track of the central importance of this living word of God. Where the sending from God maintains its edge. It's direct. It's powerful. And instead, we start getting the idea of how we're going to do things and we agree together and, and so on and so forth. And you get down the road and realize something has happened. This usually happens gradually. It's the slow fade. Okay, this is what I read from Hebrews in the beginning. Be careful that we don't neglect so great a salvation who was confirmed by God through miracles and signs in the Holy Spirit. Let's beware lest we drift away. And that's where a little bit of the history comes in. Content without form is usually a flash in the pan and is gone. Now the form, when it loses the content, can hang around for a while. And that can actually be a little bit of a dangerous thing because we can imagine that we still have something, even as it's fading. Okay, now I know we have a lot of visitors here tonight, but I'm, I'm speaking, speaking to everybody, but I'm speaking to those of us who are part of this fellowship that began almost 50 years ago. And we're now in our second, third, and starting into fourth generation. Okay? We need to be watchful of the slow fade. We need to be watchful of starting to substitute the power of God in his anointed word. We substitute it with principles, with the outworkings of external manifestations of things that are done well and done right, and that you know we're living right and so forth. If we lose the anointed word of God, we have lost the lifeblood of the body. The body without the spirit is dead, James says. John Wesley, you've probably heard this quote, he said, I am not afraid that the people called Methodists should ever cease to exist, but I am afraid lest they should only exist as a dead sect, having the form of religion without the power. Amen. This is a quote from D.A. Carson. He says, people do not drift towards holiness. And I would add, they do not drift towards anointing. They do not drift towards sacrifice. They do not drift towards conviction. That never happens with a drift. Apart from grace-driven effort, he says, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and we call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves 
that we have been liberated. So there's a perennial tendency in us, in our flesh, which is weak, that we want to work out a way to systematize and codify God where we don't have the the messy inconvenience of direct confrontational encounters with his authority that grabs you by the shirt collar and says, this is God. This isn't just an idea about God. God is talking to you. Amen. The flesh would rather not quite have it so presentational. We would rather develop something that we can kind of get on top of and we can do this thing without having to rely upon God. And I think that's where we end up with systematic theologies and and a lot of intellectual pursuits that lack the anointed edge. How could Jesus say that to the Pharisees in John 5? You have never heard his voice. And then in the next sentence tells them, you spend all your time reading the scriptures. Is there any conclusion to draw from that except that reading the scriptures does not necessarily equate to hearing his voice? You can study about God all you want. But we've got to come to him. Who was him? It was Jesus Christ, the one God had sent with the message. We've got to connect with the anointed presentational word of God. Let me say one more thing about what I just mentioned about this tendency to kind of codify everything, come up with some kind of, I mean, patterns are good. God gives us patterns. But we come up with this form and we say, okay, we're just going to do this and push repeat. You know, there's something tempting about that. Even with doing, we've done several of these conferences now and we've done several teachings. And, you know, there's something in you that would say, well, that went good before. I'll just, you know, use my notes and do that again. But that's not where we're living on the edge, is it? Where's the dependency on the Spirit in the moment in that? That people will give you, oh, here's a thousand illustrated sermons. Just pick the one that seems appropriate for the... Is that the anointed Word of God? But it's so tempting to the flesh. Because it was, it was good. These are good principles. These, that was a good message. Let's, let's push repeat. Brother Blair ministered a, a message decades ago that he called tabernacling God. He was talking about Peter who was on the mountain when the glory of Christ is revealed and Peter says, oh, here's Moses and Elijah. Let's build some tabernacles. You know, let's, let's erect a frame and try to kind of capture the moment so that we can kind of just stop here. You know, and what, what, was, what was the response from heaven? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Don't, don't build a frame around it and say, well, this, this is pretty neat. Let's just stop here and, and build a little shrine around it and celebrate what happened before. Walk in relationship. Thank you, Jesus. I was walking with my wife on the Montana ranch here a couple of weeks ago. We stopped there briefly on our way up to Idaho. And the Lord dropped a scripture into my mind with some force. And I felt like he was trying to say something to me. 
And it's in Luke 7, where Jesus is talking to the people about John the Baptist. And he says to them, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? It tells us in the Bible that all of Jerusalem and Judea was going out into the wilderness to John. They're all going out to John. John was actually the son of a priest. He was, he was an inheritor, you might say, of the, of the systematized thing that had been completely lost. Okay? And Jesus is asking them, what prompted people to do that? To go out into the wilderness? What was out there? that you were going out to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Were you going out to hear somebody this way and that way, uh, a relativist maybe in today's terms, a compromising, man-pleasing? Is that what was called drawing people out into the wilderness? But what did you go out to see? We talk a lot in our fellowship about the need to make an exodus from the kingdoms of this world. A spiritual exodus sometimes involves natural steps too, but a spiritual exodus out of the frameworks and the culture that immerses us in this world and into this way of life that is the kingdom of God. And we say, God, what would inspire people to do it? And that's how this was striking me. What inspired people to do it? What did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in king's courts. Are we going to appeal to people through an idyllic pastoral lifestyle? Is that going to inspire an exodus? What is happening here? What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. In, in the Gospel of John, one of the first verses says, there was a man sent from God, and his name was John. I mean, guys, this is after 400 years of talking about God, of systematized theologies and working out all kinds of rationalizations and everything. And no one was sent by God. They had killed the prophets. They had stoned the people that were sent, and they'd worked out this rabbinical system where God wasn't necessary anymore. We already have him figured out. We already have the Torah that we can, you know, grind on, and we can kind of be the people who dispense it, this gap between the clergy and the laity. That's been a historic thing also. And all of a sudden, did you hear? There's this guy. He is completely unconventional. He has, he has no, he's not an entrepreneur. He's not, he's not kingdom building for himself. He's not doing anything pastoral, idyllic, or anything else. But I hear God when he speaks. For hungry people, there is only one thing that inspires them to do the will of God. And that is hearing His voice. Hearing and believing the one that He sends. That has got to remain at the center 
of everything that we do. If we end up with the circumference of all the blessings, and uh, we, we believe in cultural expression of the kingdom. I mean, we're all about that. That's biblical. Amen. But if we end up with the circumference, and we have lost that prophetic edge of the word of God, that alone can break the rock into pieces, we've lost everything. A prophet, yes. And I say to you more than a prophet. This is him of whom it was written. Behold, I send my messenger, my messenger, before your face. Face is presence in Hebrew. Before your presence who will prepare the way before you. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. This is a phenomenal statement that he goes on to make. I mean, John has started a revolution. He is the precursor of the gospel here. He's got the first part of it. He's got part of the good news that you can repent. We can prepare the way. We can, we can level the deck. We can bring down the mountains of pride and prejudice and whatever. We can raise up the valleys of unbelief and faithlessness. Amen. We can prepare the way because the kingdom is at hand. And then he says... But he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. We were talking earlier about this passage, actually. And he was, Brother Ossie was pointing out that born is the operative word here. He says, born of women, he's the greatest. There's another kind of birth. <laughs> he who is the least in the kingdom, which you can't even see unless you're born again, Jesus said, is greater than John. So the impact that we are to have, it's not saying that you or I have individually a greater prophetic ministry than John was gifted with as a person. But he's saying if you're in the kingdom, you have been constitutionally reformed by this born again, then you should have this anointing in your life. And more than that, you are part of a body where the lights and the anointing comes together in coordination and shines a light where people say, there was a man sent from God. Not just a shooting star evangelist, wow, he was a neat preacher, but a whole body of people moving under the anointing in all the gifts that God would give. Hungry souls want to hear from God. They don't want to hear from you or me. So we will only be as effective as we are transparent vessels of his presence and his anointed word. Ephesians 2 says we are built on the foundation. Micah read this. The foundation of the apostles and prophets. 1 Corinthians 12, God has appointed these in the church first apostles. The word apostle means sent. That's what it means. The first apostles Second, prophets. Third, teachers. After that, miracles, gifts of healings, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues. There's an order here in what he's presenting as gifts in the church that we need to place priority on and give honor to. First Thessalonians 5. Let me see if you're paying attention. Do not quench... Engaging constructive discussions in the church. 
Do not despise systematic teaching. That's not what he warns us against. Do not quench the spirit. And do not despise prophetic utterance. 1 Corinthians 14 and 1. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Goes on in the same chapter, and he describes what to Paul seems to be the way the church should be operating. He says, if everyone prophesies and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all. He is convicted by all. And thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so, falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. I think that's supposed to be a normative passage for the church. Is that what the church looks like? Whose fault is it if it doesn't? We have to own responsibility in our sphere for whether this is what the church looks like. Later in the same chapter, Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. Thank you, Jesus. The ministries that rely most directly upon the unction of God and supernatural power are the hardest ministries to fake. Thank God for that. They're also the most despised by the flesh. Paul said that apostles were more despised than any others. They're also the first to be lost, historically. They're the easiest giftings and expressions to lose out of the church. In the beginning, John says in his gospel, was the Word. Nothing happens without the Word. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning of our fellowship was the Word. What was there on East 14th Street besides the Word? The love of God expressing itself through a man sent from God. And we thank God for all the outgrowth, for all of the, the outworkings and the, and the adding and, the, and the, all the things that God has done and expounded and shown us. Every bit of it came by walking in that word, by continuing in the faith that came to us by hearing. Amen. The hearing not about God, hearing from God. Thank you, Jesus. Hebrews 11 says the worlds were framed by the word of God. Have you ever felt the word of God frame you? Set the context for everything else? Rearrange your priorities? Genesis 1 tells us the earth was formless and void until God said. And if this has to be sustained, which we believe it does, Hebrews 1 and 3 says, All things are upheld by the word of his power. We can't lose the word. Brother Aaron was sharing with me during the break about a little bit of the context of Romans 10, which I was going to read here. We referred to it earlier. But he was pointing out that it says that the Jewish, the Jews 
seeking to establish a righteousness of their own, did not submit to God. Okay, there's a kingdom building kind of thing that becomes our thing, you know, and that's the context where he goes on to say, but the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven to bring Christ down? This is not something we can just go get and pull off the shelf. Nor is it something that's, if you read this another way, that is inaccessible. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how to get there. Uh, how could that, that seems out of reach and that seems out of reach. Or who will descend into the abyss to bring Christ up from the dead? But what does it say? He's quoting the Old Testament. The word is near to you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. How did it get there? That is the word of faith that we are preaching to you. So this submission that we talked about earlier of receiving the one that he sends in God's design, it's the best thing that ever happened to our proud flesh. We don't get saved by pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We are saved by receiving the one that he sends. You seek to establish your own righteousness. You search the scriptures to do all that. That doesn't humble you. When you say, I believe. When you encounter God. That humbles the flesh. That makes room for his presence and his glory to fall. Even when we read the scriptures, do we have the humility of the Ethiopian eunuch? Philip comes by. Do you understand what you're reading? How can I unless someone explains it to me? Is this an intellectual problem that the eunuch has? I don't think that's what he's saying. He's just saying there are mysteries that have to be revealed by revelation. But if God would send someone and he begins to preach Christ to him from that scripture... Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? We've got to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. How will they call on him they haven't believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? The King James puts an of in there, and it's, it's not in the original text, and it twists the meaning a little bit, actually. It doesn't say, how will they believe in him of whom they have not heard? It says, how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? Do you see the difference? Okay. The difference is, are we talking about God? Are we hearing about God? Or are we hearing his voice? You have never heard his voice at any time. Remember Jesus told them? You haven't seen his form, haven't heard his voice, don't have his word living in you, because you will not receive the one that he sends. I want to do it my way. I want to get it figured out. I want to have a little place too. Well, I'm part of the body also. All of those attitudes do not humble the flesh. Every one of us must come as a little child with the perspective that says, Oh God, teach me your ways. We will stream to the mountain of the Lord, Brother Micah, and say, please teach us his ways. This is not what some people have to do where other superpower gifted people don't have to do it. This is how everyone 
comes to God and remains in God. I'll tell you the truth. The most anointed, gifted men of God that I have known in my life were, as a rule, the most humble and childlike and dependent upon the Spirit in their walk with God. The most receptive to hear His voice through something a child said or whatever. Thank you, Jesus. It's that humility that makes us a vessel. Thank you, Jesus. How will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Well, that's easy. You go to seminary. You learn how to do it. You get the manual of homiletics. You do lots of study on the Bible until you sound really smart. And then you come up with cute things and tell enough jokes. And there's a system to this. People will enjoy you. Get a lot of likes on YouTube. He he indicates you're not really preaching unless you're sent from God. Unless you're under a divine mission and calling. Thank you, Jesus. Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Thank you, Jesus. One of the most important questions we can ask ourselves is, who has God sent to me? How do we know who God has sent to us? People go about that backwards, don't we? We, we tend to say, I'm looking for the church that I approve of. I'm for, I, I spend a lot of time listening to YouTube preachers. This guy's got a little bit of this. It's pretty good. That guy's got a little bit of that. It's pretty neat, but he's off over here. And we can become experts in all kinds of people, and all kinds of ideas floating around out there. But if God composes the body according to his design, we should be asking ourselves, where do I hear God? Where can I walk in relationship with an anointed body of people who feel the same respect and childlike, desperate need for his presence that I do? Thank you, Jesus. Can there be such a place on the earth? I heard Brother Micah's word of faith last night. (laughs) If you seek him with all your heart, he's going to answer you. If you're looking for it sincerely, you're going to find it. If we don't give up (laughs) in the quest, but we believe God has got to be out there somewhere. When we peruse around, and uh, there's a time to seek. I'm not denying that. I'm not making fun of anybody who's even sincerely perusing YouTube looking for the word of God. Okay. But if it's honest, it's not going to be a matter of, who do I think is a good preacher? Who do I think already lines up with all the doctrines that I think are right? But instead, we're going to be saying, God, where, do, where are you speaking to me? And where have you composed me into your body? What do you desire for my life? I'm here to submit to your authority. I'm not here to choose for myself the difference between good and evil. That's the root of all my problems. I'm here to submit to you. So I just need to know that it's you. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. John 15. How do we receive people sent from God? Galatians 4, Paul tells the Galatians, he commends them. He says, you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus himself. 
That's how the Galatian church felt about Paul. This wasn't just a smart guy. They recognized God has sent this man to us. You say, well, that was Paul. Nobody's the equivalent of Paul today. Well, with an attitude that says that, there never will be. I'm not suggesting someone else is going to start adding to the scripture. I'm just saying it's convenient to dismiss the possibility that God might send people in that direct kind of fashion today. It's part of his design to humble our flesh that we've got to receive the one he sends. Some of you know the examples, but consider when Cornelius is praying and he has a visitation from an angel. I don't know how many of us in this room have had a visitation from an angel, but this is an answer to prayer. He's fasting. He's seeking God. He's looking for the truth. And an angel appears to him, but the angel does not tell him the message. Directs him to a man. Why? Because it does something to us. When we say, guys, I had this angelic visitation. That can lift you up because you're special. When God says, why don't you go to that guy over there and he's going to tell you the words by which you and your household can be saved. That requires a different kind of humility. This guy's a centurion in the Roman army. He's going to go to this Jewish fisherman nobody that he's never even met before and say, do you have a word from God? The same thing happens with the Apostle Paul because we would say, well, of course, he, he sent him to Peter. Peter had the keys to the kingdom. But that was just a thing that was never repeated again because um, you know, it was a special anointing on Peter. But look what happens with Paul, who was called Saul. He encounters Jesus himself. The bright light, he's knocked off his horse. And, and what does Jesus tell him? Go to the street called Straight, and someone is going to come and speak to you. Is Jesus incapable of spelling things out for Paul? course not it is for Paul's sake and who does he send him to Peter no he sends him to this guy named Ananias who we never hear about in the rest of the scriptures this is apparently not some super prominent church leader he may have been a minister I don't know but he sends him to Ananias and Ananias is a little reluctant about it but God is sending him it's for our sakes it's for our good in Thessalonians, this is written by Paul and Silas and Timothy. And they're writing to the Thessalonian church and he's commending them. He says, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. You want the Word of God to be powerful in your life? Then stop trying to dismiss it as something that's from men and say, God, where do I feel you through your people? Thank you, Jesus. How do we know it's the anointed Word of God? I'll end with this. It has to accord with the Scriptures. Amen? Isaiah 8, I believe is where it is, where he says... To the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, they have no light of dawn in them. Could Jesus constantly appeal to the scriptures to support what he was saying? 
okay? If it doesn't accord with the scriptures, it's not the word of God. Now, some people stop right there and use that as a defense. And they hold up their Bibles. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you find eternal life, but you won't come to me. How many times did the Pharisees get hung up over, well, in the Bible it says, search and see, no prophet ever came out of Galilee. You can get stuck on your preconceptions about the Bible that are your own interpretations or something you've been taught, and then it hangs us up from, from hearing something. We say, well, I was really feeling something, but I don't know what it is, this and that. Okay? Let's search the scriptures. Let's be noble like the Bereans. But there's more. If the Bible is our standard, then let's let the Bible tell us how we know it's the word of God. <laughs> what does it say in Hebrews 4? The word of God is living. It's powerful. It's effective. It's quick. These are different translations. Thank you, Jesus. It's sharp. It's discerning. It divides between spirit and flesh. It's going to be convicting. It doesn't come, according to 1 Corinthians 2, as an expression of human wisdom, but as a demonstration of the spirit and power. Jeremiah said, His word is like a fire shut up in my bones. If somebody doesn't feel what they're saying, no one else is going to feel it either. Okay, I'm not just talking to us about how do I receive it. I'm talking to us about how do I know if I'm giving the word of God? How do I know if I'm moving in the anointing of God? Does it feel like a fire shut up in your bones? Jeremiah said, I'm weary of holding it back. There is something pressing out from inside of you. It is the word of the Lord, the burden for others and for the honor of God. The word of God, when it's really his word, is going to harmonize and animate every aspect of your being. Your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. It vibrates through your life. Thank you, Jesus. Now, we could take my description. Here I am talking about the anointing. Okay, but We could take this description. We could say, well, I don't really feel that way, you know. But if we have enough humility, we have to ask ourselves, was that on my side or was that on the side of the one speaking? Because sometimes God speaks and people hear thunder. So the position of our heart has a lot to do with what we hear. Remember what Jesus says in John 8? He says, why is it that you can't hear me? Why is it that my speech is not plain to you? He says, you don't hear because you don't belong to God. There's not a surrender to his authority. You want to hear from God, then pray, God, speak to me and whatever you tell me, I'm going to obey it. That's a decision ahead of time to submit to his authority. And when that posture of heart is there, you can hear. It opens your ears. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. John 10. John 18, he says, those who belong to the truth hear me. There's a belonging aspect that has to do with the lordship of Christ. Lordship is an authority term. And if he's Lord, then we've placed ourselves in position to hear his voice and be changed. But I want to say for myself, plant me where the anointed word of God is. 
You can have the rest. I want to be where the Word of God is living and powerful and alive in His people.